It's Fire Away Friday. Fire Away Friday. On Exploring the Word, this is your chance to ask us your Bible question. You can email your question at word at AFR.net or visit Facebook.com slash Exploring the Word. Exploring the Word. It's Fire Away Friday on American Family Radio. More than a century ago, there was a man named G.K. Chesterton. He was a very influential Christian thinker and writer. And this was in the early 20th century, but Chesterton said, when people cease to believe in the true God, they do not believe in nothing, they believe in anything. And so today on Exploring the Word, Bert and I are going to answer questions because we hope that people everywhere will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and in His Word. And so what we're going to do with questions from listeners, we're going to give answers that uh, we believe, to the best of our ability, are biblical answers, but they point to the, the true path and the true truth, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And Bert, don't you always love to open up the emails and look at the letters? and get the correspondence, and we, we get to the questions because, in my opinion, they're very astute, very insightful questions that our listeners ask. They are, and it represents several. Usually we get a, a question, and it's stated in different ways. Somebody else asks it. So when we answer one question, many times we're answering two or three. And, uh, Alex, the reason we want to know the Word is because we want to know the God of the Bible. Yes, yes, the the Bible brings wisdom just on its own. Reading the book of Proverbs will give you great wisdom. Uh, reading the book of Psalms will give you great insight on, on the heart of God. And reading the book of Genesis gives us insight on the beginning. But the reason it's so important is the knowing the God of the Bible. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's what we want to do on Exploring the Word. We explore the Word so you'll know the Lord better. And so, Alex, it's always a joy to, to answer the questions. These questions come to you and me. They come mm-hmm. by frequently asked questions here every once in a while and Word at AFR.net, Facebook. So we, we get these questions. And on Fridays when you and I, both of us can't be here, many times we will just take time to do that because it's a good time to do that. So there's no phone lines open today. These are all questions that you've, you guys have sent in to us, and so we're mm-hmm. going to do our best to answer them. Well, you know, um, and by the way, you can uh, contact us. We do love to hear from you, word, W-O-R-D, word, at AFR.net. And um, I've got a really good question, uh, but let me just say this as we get to uh, the first of a number of questions we'll address this hour. This is a pre-recorded edition of Exploring the Word, as you said. We're traveling, so we can't take a lot of phone calls, but we do think um, that the questions are, are good and, and things we want to answer. Do you remember... In Matthew eleven seven, when um, the disciples of John the Baptist were talking to Jesus and his disciples, Jesus asked the question, um, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken with the wind. And he was talking about basically trying to help people understand not only who he was as the Messiah, but who John the Baptist was. And the reason I've always thought about that is that... Um, the Lord doesn't mind people having questions. Uh, now, when you hear the truth and you get the answer, you need to respond to that. I've got a Bert, a scholar that I enjoy reading sometimes, Peter Kreeft, K-R-E-E-F-T, and he wrote a very well-known book called The Handbook of Christian Apologetics. 
Peter Kraft once said, uh, we can't avoid reasoning, but what we can avoid is reasoning poorly. In other words, uh, we are made to be thinkers and people of, of rationality, but when you've got the answer to the question, we need to respond to it. And, Bert, I think some people, because I've heard folks, they'll say, well, it's not the destination, it's the journey, as if all we do is is journey, but the destination is Jesus Christ. And uh, last night, Bert, I was actually sharing the gospel with a gentleman named Jack, and he was in his mid-70s, and he asked me a really good question, and I'd like to start with it. He asked this question, and, and he was not, you know, trying to play chess against God. I think Jack was sincere, and I want to ask people to pray for him. But he said, how do we really, really know that Jesus rose from the dead? And Bert, I thought what was really good was this gentleman that I shared the gospel with, he understood the resurrection was pivotal, because if Jesus really did rise— and the evidence is clear that he did. But if Jesus rose, then that tells us he was who he claimed to be, the Messiah. And so I begin to share some things. But, Bert, that's a good question, isn't it? How do we, how do we for sure know that Jesus really rose? Everything we believe is staked on the answer being yes. We do know he did. How do we know? I think there are evidence that is sufficient uh, that we can have the very greatest confidence in the world that it's true. But Paul said, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, we're of men most miserable. So that is the question. And every other question stems short of how important that is. So Alex, one way, let me just state it real quickly. The Bible says it did. Now, again, that's what P.O., that's the Bible. The Bible has proven itself again and again and again that it is true. Uh, when men try to prove that it's not, ultimately it proves it to be true. And even science has proved life is in the blood. The Bible stated that centuries ago. The sphere of the earth, it's a sphere. The Bible stated that centuries ago when men thought it was still flat. So, Alex, the Bible has proven itself to be reliable, truthful, and it states that Jesus truly did raise, he raised himself from the dead. No man takes my life. I lay it down freely. Guess what? If I if I lay it down, I'll take it up again, he said. Amen. Amen. So let, let's talk about this for a second. Uh, you know, Sean McDowell is the son of Josh McDowell. Josh is a great apologist. My friend Sean McDowell, we've shared the stage many, many times. And he did his Ph.D. dissertation on the lives of the disciples. And Sean did a great study for his dissertation on did any of the apostles recant? In other words, imagine, you know, they've preached Christ is risen, Peter preached at Pentecost, the disciples go forth, and, you know, there was Jewish, Greek, and Roman persecution. And church history tells us that all of the disciples died. They were willing to die for the message that they had seen the risen Jesus. And none recanted, and and more than a few historians and people have said, you know, it's one thing to say a message, but um, if your head is on the chopping block and you know it wasn't true, uh, you might say, oh, okay, wait, I'll stop. 
Uh, no, none of the early Christians, not only the apostles who had seen the Lord, but even Christians for a century after the life of Christ were willing to die rather than deny the resurrection. And we really don't have on record any of the apostles, those who were with the Lord, or the early Christians recanting. Now, now that alone is not the only argument, but Bert, that is very significant that um, rather than deny the resurrection, hundreds of Christians were willing to die, be put to death. Some burned incredibly painful deaths. Why were they willing to give their life for a message? Because it was real. It was. Um, and Alex, when I read Second Peter, and I was, I was doing a study in Second Peter, and, and Peter writes, he says, we were eyewitnesses in his talking about the the transfiguration, he is eyewitness of the the resurrection. We're talking about eyewitnesses of people who have seen and, as you said, declared and died, and all of them died at the point of martyrdom, okay? We're not talking about just living their life. John, we, we don't know exactly about the Apostle John. I know he lived the longest, but again, exiled, so many things happened. But he stayed true to that. And again, so many people early on. And remember what the the Bible account, they said, tell them that, that they've come and stole him. You know, they, they could not even disprove it in the early years, you know, because the truth of it was the resurrection stood strong. Well, exactly. You know, I was thinking about F.F. F. Bruce. Do you remember the British... New yes. Testament scholar F.F. Yes. F. Bruce, uh, talking about these eyewitness accounts. All right. Now, I, I'm going to talk uh, beyond the New Testament here in just a minute, but I remember reading about the fact that you had uh, eyewitness testimony, multiple testimony, uh, and regarding the resurrection accounts, F.F. F. Bruce once said, and I thought this was a great quote, he said, this meets all of the historical criteria that could possibly be demanded of a text. Now, another one of my favorite historians, Will Durant, uh, he said, if we discount Jesus and the resurrection, then we also have to throw out a hundred other ancient names that no historian would dream of questioning, but for whom we have far less attestation. So you've got over 500 people who claim to have seen the risen Jesus. They were willing to die for it. No Jewish, Greek, and Roman skeptic could refute it. I mean, all they needed to do was produce a body, and it's all over. And yet, Christianity exploded throughout the world, and even this, and this is huge. Remember, really for the first you know century and a half to 200 years, the vast majority of early believers were Jewish. Now, for centuries, pious Jews had observed a Saturday Sabbath, and in fact, their relationship with God was contingent, at least in part, on keeping that Sabbath. And yet, suddenly, overnight, throughout Palestine and the Roman Empire, Jewish people begin to worship on Sunday. Why? That was Resurrection Day. First day of the week. I mean, clearly, Bert, something happened. Something happened, and it was a great event. It literally shook the earth, 
and it shook social standing. It shook everything. And I would say over 2,000 years of standing on that truth has proven it to be true. Uh, not only just the eyewitnesses, but what has happened because of that, the lives that have been changed. Again, uh, no life could be changed the way some of the lives have been changed just by, quote, changing your mind and changing your habits. We're talking about a cataclysmic turnaround in people's life that has happened. And I would say, Alex, that is evidence of a risen Savior, not a dead Savior. A mm. dead Savior, you would not have that. What you would have is what you have in in Islam, just a bunch of rules to keep and just a bunch of things to follow. Uh, what you would have is what you'd have with Confucius, just a bunch of sayings that sound really good. But in Jesus Christ, we not only have the evidence, we have the power that has come with that to change lives, to even change the world. And I would declare to those that were listening, if they've wondered if the resurrection is true, it is proof in history, not only of the eyewitnesses, not only of those that have given their lives to believe in it, but the lives that's been changed because of it, Alex. Amen. And, and, you know, let me say this. We often talk about, you know, um, what we call extra-biblical sources. In other words, Jewish, Greek, and Roman sources contemporary with the time of Christ that reference uh, different things about Jesus, the miracles, his claims to deity. One last thing, and I know we're getting kind of in the, the academic weeds here, but uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian Josephus, also references Jesus and his miraculous nature. Hey, friend, this is real. And when Matthew 28, 6 says, He is not here, He is risen, as He said. See that empty tomb? You can believe it. He is risen indeed. Hey, we'll be back with more questions right after the break. Welcome back to Exploring the Word on American Family Radio. Let me go down, down, down in history As another blood faithful member of the family Welcome back to Exploring the Word. This is Fire Away Friday, and we're taking questions that's come to us by by word at AFR.net, Facebook, or personal questions that Alex and I have come up with from other people. And Alex, this one came in on frequently asked questions, and they transferred it to Exploring the Word. And I, I love it because it was talking about the resurrection and how important that is. In the Old Testament, there's those that I remember. Well, let me put it this way. I remember in one of the courses I had, more of a liberal professor that I had to take, but I took it. And he said, you know, real history starts in Genesis chapter 12. And so he was saying, you know, Adam and Eve, eh, that's possibly myth and legend or representative Mm. stories. The ark really wasn't. But just as we believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real and we're staking our lives on it, we're also saying the flood really did happen. And that flood came and it changed everything that flood did. But God had told Noah to build that ark, and he did. And he and his sons and the wives, they got in the ark, 
And we talk about the animals that were in the ark. Everybody want to know about dinosaurs, and they want to know about everything. And uh, I know one author wrote, what did Noah do with a woodpecker? You know, I thought that was a good question. But yeah. we had someone to know, were the in, what did he do with insects? Did the insects come, or could they survive in the water? And especially termites. So, Alex, mm-hmm. have, you, have you thought about what Noah did with the termites? Well, I have thought about that and and studied on that. And and let me just say for the record, uh, Bert, I do believe in the flood of Genesis. I believe in a literal global worldwide flood and that Noah and his sons built that ark and took the the animals two by two. You know, uh, not trying to be funny, but you might divide the insects into three categories, you know, uh, parasites, pollinators and pests. (laughs) Because, you know, I I, I wish the past may have left out, but they weren't worthy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, some insects are definitely necessary, like the the pollinators. You know, I think about the bees and the the insects that take pollen from plant to plant. And then some are kind of like uh, pests, maybe gnats or mosquitoes or something. And then, you know, there's parasites like like the tick. You know, where I live down in the southeastern U.S., as much as I love summertime, ticks are uh, not only a pest, but even dangerous. But scholars have said a couple of things, because for one, there are, there are probably a lot of insects that might have survived the flood on vegetation uh, right. that floated in the, in the waters, you know, and things like that. I do believe probably some species died off in the flood. I mean, I think the dinosaurs largely were buried in the mud and the upheaval, and there may have been some classes of insects. I mean, if you think bugs are bad now, uh, well, praise God, because there's probably a few classifications of insects that might have died out in the flood. But, Bert, I think that there were probably many, many insects on the ark, some that were, you know, on the backs of some of the animals, and some that were probably in there. And while we're talking about insects, maybe we're talking also even about butterflies. Maybe a larvae and a caterpillar went on the ark and a butterfly came out. But, you know, however God did it, he preserved living things so that when the ark landed and the flood waters abated uh, after the judgment of the flood, the world was repopulated. And, uh, Bert, just yesterday, I was watching some dragonflies dart around. Do you, do you have dragonflies? We do. We do. We sure do. Aren't they fascinating? They are. It's amazing how they can hover like a helicopter, and uh, then they can go on, and uh, they're amazing. Uh, and I, beetles and bumblebees, yeah, and but, yeah. I, I give God the glory. The most amazing one to me is the hummingbirds. Uh, I oh, happened yeah. to be outside just about a week or two ago, and here it was. I was kind of around the corner at my home, and a hummingbird, not knowing that I was there, came up to, you know, a flower, and it was just there, just fluttering its wings and staying right there, and then it would go to the next. And uh, it's amazing what what God's creation is, and mm-hmm. and just to think, oh, say it was, uh, you know, if it was the survival of the fittest, I'm not sure the hummingbird would have. Uh, survive some of the predator birds, you know, and others. So God God knew what he was doing. And even at the ark, when we see that and we read that, we can be assured it is true. It answers a lot of questions we are today about 
the continents we have and their shape. Uh, it answers the questions a lot about the volcanoes, especially all the mountain ranges that's under the water in the sea. Uh, there's so many things that the I honestly say that the flood answers that continental drift over millions of years does not answer. Uh, if oh, it was yeah. just drift, we would have a smooth ocean bottom. There's no doubt in my mind. And sure. so, so Alex, yes, the ark was real, and uh, God told—I I think God gave Noah—he uh, told him how to build the ark, the dimensions, and what to build it out of. I got a feeling he told him a little bit more about the animal life as well and how to preserve it. Uh, they didn't record yeah. that, and I don't think it was necessary to record, but I, I believe Noah— you know, got some special information about these animals from God's creation. Well, you know, I've told the story many times about going to the Grand Canyon for 11 days with staff from uh, Ken Ham's ministry, Answers in Genesis, and uh, we were out there with uh, 24 scholars and saw fossils. We rafted 187 miles down the Colorado River. But here's the thing, Bert. Out there in the desert, uh, it's sedimentary rock. Well, sediment... That's rock laid down in water. And we saw all these layers, in fact, saw a, a fossilized tree about 30 feet long that um, there were these layers. And, of course, the evolutionary naturalistic worldview says that, you know, dust, uh, infinitesimally small amounts of dust built up for millions of years. Well, you know, a tree would have rotted away, and yet we saw this 30-foot-long fossil of a tree through all these layers the way that the fossil record happened, and this does speak to the flood, of course, but to make a fossil, you need rapid burial and high pressure. The Bible says the foundations of the great deep broke loose. And, Bert, I, I think that it wasn't just rain coming from above, but there were probably explosive eruptions of mud and water. And remember, it was a judgment on a fallen world. And all the, the rocks and mountain ranges and the peaks and the valleys that not only we see above ground, but even at the bottom of the ocean, I really think that the flood, uh, allowing for the flood of Noah, is the key to understanding the geography of this planet. I, I do as well. I remember taking geology in college, and we were mm -hmm. looking at that, and the professor wasn't necessarily... Uh, creationist. He he gave God. He was one of those that believe, okay, God set it in motion. And then he, he believed God started life, but evolution took care. And there was just no answers for some of the issues. Creation and the flood answer most of the questions. There may be one or two that we, we just don't know about that and I understand that. But listen, evolution, you have so many gaps in the evolutionary theory that it is just, uh, what, what did Frank Turek, he doesn't have enough no, faith, faith to be an atheist, atheist which would be yeah. evolutionist and, and, and at that point. And so um, I, I agree, it, just, it doesn't, evolution, honestly, scientifically, does not make sense. Well, let me say one last thing, and I know we need to move on. And folks, if you're tuning in, uh, you're listening to Exploring the Word, Bert Harper and Alex McFarland, and this is a Fireway Friday questions for the whole hour, but it's a pre-record. By the way, our book that Bert and I just did, we worked on it from 2020, and it's coming out in the fall of 21, 
It's published by Broad Street Publishing of Minnesota, and it's on the AFA store, but it's the top 100 questions from the first 10 years of exploring the Word, and um, several hundred pages, and we worked on it for quite a number of months, and so honored to do it, your questions and God's answers. But let me say one last thing, Bert. Evolutionists, frequently, they have this accusation that they call God of the gaps. In other words, if there's a gap in our knowledge, we'll say, well, how did, how did all those animals, including maybe birds and insects, get taken on the ark? And like you say, well, God told Noah, and the Bible tells us what we need to know, but, you know, for the things that we simply can't explain, we just trust that God did it. Well, the evolutionists will say, there you Christians go again. Whenever you don't know the answer, you put God in the gap. Exactly. But let me say what evolutionists do. They are evolutionists of the gap. Because what we'll, we'll say, well, we've, we've never observed something come from nothing. We've never observed something turn into something else. We've never observed information come from a non-intelligent source. So you say evolutionists, these things that how this world allegedly built itself, how did that happen? And they'll say, well, natural selection. But, but listen carefully, folks. Darwin's natural selection, if you read Origin of the Species, and I have, it's a false book. It's horribly damaged this world, I believe. But Darwin and his followers, they, they say, well, natural selection chose how to build the eye. And natural selection made this animal group walk upright. And see, they attribute to natural selection really the characteristics of a thinking, creative being. And Bert, I would say this, wisdom, choice, design, selection, creativity, power, that's not blind natural selection. It is not. Who they're talking about, but they really don't want to acknowledge the, the builder, maker, designer, creator of the universe. It's not blind natural selection. It's God. Let me make this, and we'll get to the next question. It is, a, it is based on philosophy, not science, honestly. They start with the philosophy, and they fit their science to fit their philosophy. They say, well, you do too. Well, we, I think we have greater evidence, and I'll stand on that, Alex. I'm not a scientist, but what the ones that I know— that are believers, the evidence is great, and you just listed them there, the design, the strength, uh, the lasting, you know, how it does. No observable, none of those things have been observed. That's the reason it's millions and millions and billions of years ago. It's the only way it could have happened because uh, we have no record of such things happening. Hey, you got another question, brother? Yes, I, I do, and it's the question about Abraham and Sarah. Why did God allow Abraham and Sarah to have a baby with Hagar? And, you know, um, let me just, Bert, correct me if I'm wrong here. Abraham's record as a husband is rather spotty. <laughs> oh, me. You a know, when you, you, when you look at the three giants in the Old Testament, and, and I believe they are, I believe it is Abraham, Moses, and David. I yes. would say all three of those guys had some lacking uh, ability. And I was te telling Devin this, 
Uh, our, our producer and Devin said, well, said, look who he has to work with today. Not much different today. All of us <laughs> have all yeah. these areas. But Abraham lacked a good bit. He and David were not the best husbands nor the best fathers in the world. You know, recently, Bert, you and I have been teaching through the book of Galatians, and we were in Galatians 4, and I thought about the the prophetic nature of the Bible. In Galatians 4, it talks about, you know, it, the, the larger context of Galatians is salvation through faith, not works. And Paul makes a comparison of Hagar versus Sarah, uh, Ishmael versus Isaac. And it's so interesting because it says in Galatians 4, which was written about 57 A.D., that the son of the bondwoman persecuted the son of promise and does so to this day, Paul wrote. I believe that's Galatians 4, 9. Okay, Hagar was the, the, the servant girl, and Abraham and Sarah, uh, they decided, you know, God had promised a son, and they were getting older in years, and they better do something to, quote, make it happen. So uh, Sarah suggested, and Abraham was compliant, and they had a child with Hagar. The son of the bondwoman was Ishmael. The son of promise was Isaac. And in Galatians 4, and this is amazing, Galatians 4 was written 500 years before the birth of Muhammad, 540-some years before the birth of Islam. Now, we know the Arabs persecute the Jews, the Muslims persecute Jews and Christians, but even back in Galatians, Paul says, the son Ishmael persecutes Isaac and does so to this day. I mean, God, the author of the Bible, sees history. But to the question, uh, God clearly, that wasn't God's command, but God didn't stop them. He, he apparently allowed it, although that was not his perfect plan. Bert, why would God have permitted that? Well, again, God permits man to make choices. We do. Now, I praise the Lord. He warns us, and we cannot go there. Abraham, Sarah did. And again, the sovereignty of God is best illustrated in not him controlling everything and keeping everything bad from happening, but taking those things that do happen and work them for good. Romans 8 talks about this. You know, God takes all things and he is the one that works them for good to those who love God, to those who are called. And so, Alex, I would say to you that God, yes, God permitted it the same way he permits uh, us today to make mistakes. Did it change the focus of much of the historical documentation? It did. But God is ultimately going to do what? Make it happen for good. Exactly. Folks, you're listening to Exploring the Word. We're going to come back with more of your questions on today's edition of the show. Stay tuned. We're back after this brief break. Don't go away. Now, back to the Bible study. You're listening to Exploring the Word on American Family Radio. It's about the cross. It's about my sin. It's about how Jesus came to be born once so that we could be born again. It's about the stone. Welcome back to Exploring the Word. Alex and Bert, so honored that you're listening. You're listening to the American Family Radio Network, by the way, and there is so much great programming 
not only the Bible teaching show, Exploring the Word, but just news shows and commentary. And we believe it's programming that will help you in your walk and witness. And if you go to the website, AFR.net, there's a lot, a lot of archived content. You can re-listen, you can forward a link and download podcasts and shows and share it with people. We hope you avail yourself to the AFR website and also the mobile app, regardless of what kind of uh, phone or device you carry, the American Family Radio app. I think you'll find it very, very helpful. Bert, I, I got a very interesting question. Somebody wrote in, and you know, we had, when we went through the book of Acts, you and I taught about Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. Somebody asked me the question, do you think Paul was aware of Jesus during the time of Christ's earthly ministry? Ah, great question. Uh, Paul was from Tarsus, okay, so he was going to Damascus. Uh, He had been in Jerusalem at some point uh, with Gamaliel. That's where he was taught. Uh, I, I got a feeling he had heard about him because he was persecuting the way, and uh, I, that's just uh, as much as he was involved in the whole area there, I would say he had heard of him. What do you think? You know, and, and this really is a good question, and it's one, to, to be quite honest, I'd never pondered before, but I would think that Paul had to be aware of it. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, what are the other options? Well, maybe it was such a a newsworthy thing that Pentecost happened, and, you know, there's all these people that are hearing the gospel in Jerusalem. Certainly, certainly by Pentecost, uh, you know, Saul had heard of this, because remember, Saul was zealous, very zealous for the law, zealous for the Jewish uh, religion. But I'm thinking, I'm with you, because, look, the Bible talks about Jesus, you know, was preaching the way of the kingdom of God and healing. And it says, you know, news of Jesus had spread throughout the entire region. Well, we don't know. I just don't know that we can definitively know. But I'm thinking that that Saul of Tarsus would have heard of Jesus, the, the one he opposed, the one he eventually would serve after meeting the risen Jesus, um, if I had to guess, I'd say Paul knew about it. I would too. But the great thing is Jesus knew about Saul of Tarsus. Oh, and amen. after he was called, I love it. He said, I'm going to show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. He is going to talk about me in front of governors, in front of kings, in front of everyone. And what what a calling that was upon his life, Alex. And uh, Mm. God used Paul to really change the world. One of the most significant things that ever happened was the Macedonian call on the second missionary journey when Paul was staying in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he was going to go further north. And it says the Spirit hindered him. And he said, okay, but I'll try again. So he tried again, and the Lord hindered him again. And then that night he heard the Macedonian call, come on over here. Now what happened? He went from Asia to Europe. And what a transition, what a field of ministry that would become. And and so I, I know Pentecost had happened, but the Apostle Paul used instrument of God. Uh, I believe he knew about Jesus before that Damascus Road experience at least, but after that, what a difference he made. 
Amen. Amen. Well, that's great. Do you have a question? I do. And and okay. this came in and asked, what is the difference between the unforgivable sin and the sin unto death? Now, we find the sin unto death in 1 John 5, 16. It says it this way. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So, Alex, unforgivable sin. Uh, We try to find out what it is, but as best I can, it's the sin of unbelief. Uh, Is the sin unto death the same, or is it something different? Well, you know, the the quote-unquote unforgivable sin, I'm with you in this time period of history, the the only thing that can put you beyond the realm of God's salvation is for you to die and leave this world in a state of unbelief. And and Bert, I want to be clear, there there is no second chance after death, is it? I mean, friend, your eternity, um, that that is decided in this life by what you do with Jesus. So um, sin is bad, and we're not minimizing sin, but there, there is no unforgivable sin if you'll turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Now, the sin unto death, quote-unquote, as I understand the New Testament, the Bible talks about there's a, a sin unto death. I, you know, as I understand it, that is a, really a warning to Christians that um, you might be a born-again believer— but if you're in a, a state of willful disobedience, um, uh, you know, resisting God, the Lord might take your life to pre- prevent you from doing damage to the larger body of Christ, the sin unto death. Is that how you've understood I that? I have as well. Let's give an example of that. And I, I believe, honestly, possibly Ananias and Sapphira may have been believers, followers of Christ, and they let their love for money and love for notoriety get in their way. We always have to struggle with that. And they died immediately. Now, that was in the the beginning of the church. Moses died early. He struck the rock in place of speaking to it after God told him to strike it one time. And from then on, speak to the rock and it would give water. And he, the Bible makes it plain that his eyes were strong. It says his natural force was as strong as it was, but he, God took him out before they went into the promised land. And so, mm-hmm. Alex, there are examples of others that, you know, before the, you know, you know God's timing is good, but he can take an individual out earlier than than desired because of their sin and their rebellion against God, even at the point of them being saved and them being so discredited to the kingdom of God. A couple of scriptures that I would point out regarding that, if you would care to look them up. One, and again, we're talking about believers, but they're in a stubborn state of rebellion, and rather than do damage to themselves or to the church, uh, God God takes their life. 1 John 5 First John five sixteen, and then First uh, Corinthians eleven thirty talks about you know regarding sin among believers. But it says, for this cause, many of you are sick and weak, and some have even fallen asleep or died. And so the the and we've talked about this one last part of this 
question, really the larger context, the, quote, unpardonable sin. We've talked a number of times, and we talk about this in our book, about how really the unpardonable sin could only have happened when Christ was here on earth among those that they knew the scriptures, they'd seen the miracle, they knew Jesus fulfilled all the criteria of Messiahship, and not only did they not believe, they accused him of of being demon-possessed. And that level of unbelief and rejection in the presence of an unparalleled amount of light and revelation, uh, Jesus said, uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost will not be forgiven. We today can't do that. Now, don't die in a state of unbelief, but here's my point. If you are alive and you're desiring that God is in your life and you could be a born-again Christian, you want to be saved, you can be saved if you'll turn to Christ. And, and don't say, but I've done this, this, and this. Admit your sin to God, put your faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross, and say, dear Lord, please save my soul. And he will do it. Now, if you leave this world lost, there's no second chance. But Bert, as I understand the New Testament, if people are willing to turn to Christ, whoever they are, they can be saved. They can. Don't harden your heart today. Don't keep on saying no. Uh, I want to tell this experience. It wasn't about my salvation, but it was about God speaking to my heart about becoming, quote, a preacher. Alex, I'm one of those that didn't want to. I, I'm telling you with all my heart, I did not want to. I was shy. I stuttered. I, I had so many reasons why, God, there is no way. But, you know, I couldn't get away from it. And uh, I had a friend of mine, he's going to be of the Lord, Pastor Lowell Johnson. He was my pastor, and he uh, mentored me, helped me in so many ways. He said, Bert, if you were, uh, at that time, I was dating Jan. She was my girlfriend, but she said, Mm -hmm. he said, if you'd have kept on asking Jan, will you go out with me? Will you have a date with me? Will you do this with me? And she said, no, and no, and no, and no. Would you have finally given up? And I said, yeah, I would have. He said, you don't want to, I don't, he said, I'm not comparing you to the Lord, but you don't want to say no to God. The mm. fool has said in his heart, no, no to God, and no, there is no God. It's foolish to say no to God, and it's even greater fool that would say there is no God. So, uh, Alex, the time for that person that's listening to this broadcast right now to come to Christ is right now. And if you need someone to talk to, you can go to Triple Eight Need Him. Triple Eight Need Him. And there's some people, there are partners in ministry. They will help you. They will seek you, uh, help you to seek the Lord and pray for you and share with you. So it is Triple Eight Need Him. That, you know, that is a great analogy. And it, let me say this if God is calling you, whether it's to trust Him and be saved, or maybe even to some type of service or volunteering in a realm of your church or even preaching the gospel. Hey, when the Lord is gracious enough to call, you be wise enough to to answer. Amen. Bert, I have a question here. Somebody um, asked the question, quote, do you think we are the last generation before we hear the trumpet? (laughs) We're getting that a lot these days. Have you noticed it, Alex? More in, in... 10 or 11 years of this program, I don't know when we've ever 
Well, I don't think we ever have had so many, many, many questions about this. It is on the minds of a lot of people these days, isn't it? It is, and there's reasons behind it. And and I, I am telling you, when you read the scriptures about what it says is taking place like it is in the days of Noah and what there would be, it was said they were constantly evil was on their minds continually. That's what they thought of. And when you see... Uh, an aspect of our society seem like everything they think of is wrong. Uh, I believe there's a lot of Christians here. Now, that's that's the only thing, but it does say we will be caught up with the Lord in the air. But we do still have a lot of believers here in America and Mm -hmm. across the world. God is calling out people in northern Africa. The number of people that are being saved is significant. The number of Muslims that are being saved in Iran and and Syria is phenomenal. In Europe, uh, until the pandemic hit, their baptisms were up because so many Muslims had gotten out of the Middle East, had gone into Europe, and there they had the freedom to hear the gospel, and they turned to Christ, Alex. So there's that's going on now, uh, and I praise God for it. But when you see the Scriptures and what it says will take place uh, at the time of His coming, uh, I don't see uh, any reason why there's anything keeping it from happening. I know, I know. And, you know, I've, I've said this many times, but again, let me reiterate, the, the wiring of the planet. And, Bert, i, I got to tell you, I was reading about how in most major American cities, unless you are indoors, you're, you're on camera. And they say in China, I mean, there are over a billion people in China, but there are something like five to seven cameras for every person in China. So five, six billion cameras. It is a world under surveillance. And the Bible talks about in the last days, especially during the tribulation, nobody can buy or sell or move. It's just this global police state. And so never before in the history of the planet has there been such, you know, wiring, Wi-Fi, Internet. And, hey, um, I, I just read a stat that said, you know, very few people have a, a landline anymore, the old kind of telephone on the wall in the kitchen. Everybody's got a mobile phone, and, and I understand that. But the thing is, if you're on a mobile phone, you are being tracked. And so I don't think we need to be just paranoid and have this uh, morbidly unhealthy paranoia, but we need to be ready. And the way you can be ready whenever that trumpet blasts or time comes to an end, you've put your faith in Christ, you're living for Jesus, then you'll be ready come what may. Amen. And Alex, I'm going to say it again. I didn't come up with it. I don't know who was the first person. We don't know everything about eschatology, things to come. As best we can, Alex and I are as faithful as we can be to look at the Scriptures and be as fair as we can in looking at Christ's return. We believe it could be at any time, and you need to be ready. And as someone said, we're not on the planning committee. We're on the welcoming committee. So we're saying, Lord Jesus, uh, we, we don't have to check off uh, the things that has happened, whether it be the computers or the cameras or whatever it may be, we need to check in our heart to make sure that they, we've been born again, that we're saved, and we're ready when that trumpet 
calls, Alex. We need to be ready, don't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the Bible says in Psalm 119, the entrance of thy word gives light. And, you know, when we've got the word of God in our heart, we have been enlightened and we know the truth, don't we? We do. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. Uh, Make your way to church. Worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Take somebody with you so they could hear the gospel of Jesus. And they may be the time in their life where they get ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to Exploring the Word. Tell someone about this program, but more importantly, tell them about Jesus. Jesus.